Resurrection Day to you. There we go. Let's uh, take our Bibles, if we could, and open them to Ezekiel 38, verse 13. And in Sunday school today, we're just going to continue with our Middle East meltdown study. But don't panic, we'll be commemorating the risen Lord in our sermon uh, in the second hour. But here we're not talking so much about the resurrection of Jesus, we're talking about the resurrection of a nation the nation of Israel in the last days. So to help us understand that, we, beginning of the year, embarked on a study verse by verse through Ezekiel uh, 36 through 39. And we've seen chapter 36, which is the Israel's restoration physically and spiritually, and you know what? I guess I didn't pray, did I? That's terrible. Surprised the Lord on Resurrection Sunday didn't hit me with a lightning bolt. So let's do that. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for today. Uh, grateful for your truth. <laughs> grateful for your word. Um, help us to understand that really, as a Christian, every day is Resurrection Day. Because we have been identified into your death burial, resurrection, and ascension. And because you live, um, we live as well. And we have hope that the world doesn't have because of that empty tomb. So help us to leave here uh, with that understanding. And we'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. So chapter 36 really is about the resurrection of a whole nation, uh, physically and spiritually, chapter 36, something God is going to do in the end times. Chapter 37, as we have studied, is two illustrations of the content of chapter 36, which is the valley of the dry bones vision and the two sticks coming together. Then the question is, once Israel is regathered in unbelief, what is the tool that God is going to use to convert his elect nation? And the tool is a northern invasion that's described in chapters 38 and 39. And so if you're here for the first time, this is actually part 13 um, in our series on the Middle East Meltdown. And so verses 1 through 13 basically is a description of this invasion. It's planned in the mind of God, verses 1 through 9. It's actually God drawing this northern confederation into Israel against his people, Israel. But verses 10 through 13 give you a description of that invasion from the perspective of the invaders. The invaders think that they're calling the shots. 
But in reality, it's God using the invaders as his tool to convert his people. It's a fascinating uh, development as we study this. And as we've worked our way through these chapters, uh, we've identified all of the different invaders. The Bible is very clear. Rosh or Russia will be part of this invasion, as will Central Asia, as will Iran, as will the Sudan, as will Libya, and as just like Turkey is involved. So in prior um, teachings, we've, we've taught you how to identify how all of these strange-sounding names actually fit nations that you read about regularly in your newspaper. So our list of ancient names is almost complete, but we run into a couple of more in verse 13. And we come now to Ezekiel chapter 38, verse 13. And what does it say here? It mentions three more groups, and it mentions what we would call their lame protest, meaning there are three groups or three nations that won't like what's happening, and they will actually stage a protest. Uh, They won't do anything tangible to stop it, Uh, kind of like (laughs) how Russia just went into the Ukraine, and no one's really doing a lot to stop it. The same sort of thing is going to happen here where these invaders come against the land of Israel and there's a couple of groups, three, that speak up. And that lame protest is described in verse 13. And I think if memory serves, we barely got into verse 13 last time. But it says there in verse 13, Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish with all its villages will say to you, Now, the you is this coalition of invaders. Have you come to capture spoil? Have you assembled your company to seize plunder, to carry away silver and gold, and to take away cattle and goods, and to capture great spoil? So last time we saw that there's two more names mentioned here, Sheba and Dedan. And we believe that Sheba and Dedan, just because when you look up Sheba and Dedan today on a modern-day map, they're part of the Gulf states um, right next to Dubai or the United Arab Emirates called Saudi Arabia. So we're confident, at least I'm confident, that when this invasion happens, Saudi Arabia really isn't going to like it. And they're actually going to speak up. They're not going to do anything to stop it, but they're going to voice their protest. And that's what the prophet Ezekiel predicted in verse 13, 2,600 years ago. And that's why when you look at your headlines, what you typically see is Saudi Arabia is um, non-cooperative with these other nations. So one headline reads from the Saudi prince, all side with Israel against the Palestinian uprising and Iran. So there's Saudi Arabia saying, if if Iran invades Israel, we will side with Israel. Kind of an interesting headline in light of what Ezekiel saw here 2,600 years ago as described in verse 13. 
Here's another headline. I think I shared this with you last time. It says Saudi Arabia intercepts second Yemen missile in a month. Saudi Arabia on Thursday intercepted and destroyed a ballistic missile fired from war-torn Yemen. State media reported the second such attack this month claimed by Iran-backed uh, Houthi rebels. So here is one of Iran's proxies firing uh, weapons, and here's Saudi Arabia disrupting th- that process. And when you see things like this in the headlines, you have to... Th- You have to go back to verse 13. This is exactly what Ezekiel 38, verse 13 is predicting. Saudi Arabia is non-cooperative. Now, the biggest thing that's happened within the last few years is something called the Abraham Accords. Have you heard of these? We've talked a little bit about them. They're a little tricky because the Abraham Accords are not, and they were largely brokered through... Uh, Donald Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner. They're not really peace treaties with Israel. That's the common misconception. Um, Because these countries entering into these Abraham Accords typically are little tiny countries, and they were never at war with Israel. What they are are normalization agreements, where Israel says to these little countries, uh, a lot of them in the Gulf states, right next door to Saudi Arabia. Uh, The United Arab Emirates has entered into one of the Abraham Accords. I think Bahrain has entered into one of the Abraham Accords. And everybody that follows this says Saudi Arabia is the next one to follow. But these are not peace treaties. These are normalization agreements where Israel says to these little states, all you got to do is recognize our existence. Because as you probably know, the nation of Israel doesn't even show up on most Islamic maps. So all you have to do is recognize our existence. And if you recognize our existence, then we will open up to you the four T's. Uh, Those stand for um, trade, travel, tourism, and technology. So... Relationships between Israel and these countries that enter into these accords prospers both Israel and these little countries because suddenly the four T's are opened up. And that benefits Israel and it benefits these tiny countries as well. And all you have to do is recognize that we exist. And we're going to call them the Abraham Accords because the belief is Abraham is the tie that binds, right? Uh, Abraham is recognized in Islam. Most of these countries, if not all of them, are Islamic. And Abraham is also recognized in Judaism. So Abraham is sort of an ecumenical figure that's, that's picked for the purpose of getting these nations to enter into these normalization agreements. So this is what's so interesting about Sheba and Dedan protesting. Uh, when you look at these nations that have entered into these normalization agreements, look how close they are to Saudi Arabia. And everybody says Saudi Arabia is the next one to fall or to enter into these agreements. And so what you have um, really within just the last couple of years, and I've been surprised at how, how fast it's happened, 
because we always knew Saudi Arabia would be a protester. We just didn't know why. And all of a sudden the Abraham Accords come into existence. And by the way, when I mentioned Jared Kushner and the Trump administration, you need to just sort of take off your political hat for a moment. Can we do that? Take off the political hat. This is not partisan. This is studies of prophecy. And I'm just showing you how God is using um, key figures to set the stage for his end time program. Because I'm here to tell you that every specific thing that this book talks about will happen. And we're going to see that in the second hour because as we present the case for Jesus culminating in the resurrection, we're going to see that Jesus walked into a script that was written about him hundreds and thousands of years in advance. Specific things. Where he'd be born specifically. How he would die specifically. And all of those prophecies, and I think you'll see them, a lot of them today in the sermon, happened exactly like God said. So if that happened exactly like God said, why would God switch horses in midstream and suddenly the details of the prophecies yet to come won't happen? So what is my point? My point is the Abraham Accords now put into existence a reason why Sheba and Dedan or Saudi Arabia would protest. Of course they would protest because they are benefiting from Israel economically because of the four T's, thank you, the Abraham Accords. So the Abraham Accords themselves, uh, as a lot of people have been fumbling trying to figure out how these fit, I'm trying to give you an explanation how they fit. They set the stage for verse 13. And we continue on with verse 13, and it mentions another group there. Sheba and Dedan and the merchants, you got to look at the language very carefully. It's the merchants of Tarshish. More on the merchants in a second. Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish with, with all of its villages will say, have you come to capture spoil? So not only do Sheba and Dedan protest, but so does Tarshish or her merchants. Does the name Tarshish uh, ring a bell at all? Well, if you've been studying the book of Jonah, uh, Jonah chapter 1 verse 3, that's where Jonah fled to when God said, go preach to the Ninevites. Jonah 1 verse 3, but says Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish. (laughs) So God says, go east, and Jonah says, no, I'm going to go west. He did the exact opposite of what God said. He couldn't have been further out of the will of God. And so, as you know, God took Jonah and put him into time time out, I guess we could say, uh, for about three days. And then after time out, uh, he was ready to do God's will. So it's it's always easier. It's the path of least resistance to do God's will right out of the gate. Maybe God won't have to put you in time out. But anyway, Tarshish is where he went to. So we believe that Tarshish is modern-day Spain. And Charles Ryrie in his Ryrie Study Bible indicates that Tarshish is, quote, located south of Spain near Gibraltar, 2,500 miles or 4,000 kilometers west of Israel and the opposite direction 
from Nineveh. So what you're starting to get a picture of is not only does Saudi Arabia protest this invasion from the north against Israel when it happens, but the merchants of Tarshish in Spain don't like it either. Now, look at the language very carefully. Sheba and Dedan, and it doesn't just say Tarshish. It says the merchants of Tarshish. And again, it's one of those prophecies that you look at it and you wonder how, how such a thing could come into existence. Well, the Abraham Accords, again, did something that further clarifies the meaning of this. So Charles Feinberg, in his outstanding commentary on the book of Ezekiel, I'd highly recommend this to you if you're interested in this topic, written all the way back in 1966, says, The young lions of Tarshish are taken to mean either the strong leaders and princes or greedy rulers of those commercial communities. So Feinberg says it's not just Tarshish, it's the money men of Tarshish. It's the people in commerce, the the business people, the banking people in Tarshish who are going to voice opposition to this invasion from the north. And again, the Abraham Accords furnished an explanation as to why the merchants of Tarshish would enter into this protest. Because the very last nation that has entered into these Abraham Accords is a nation called Morocco. So you see Israel there in red, and if you just go west, um, you see Morocco. So the United Arab Emirates has entered into the Arab Accords. Bahrain, a Gulf state, has entered into the Arab Accords. Everybody's just waiting for Saudi Arabia to enter into the Abraham Accords. And the last nation to enter into this normalization agreement with Israel was Morocco. Well, Morocco is right underneath what? Right underneath Spain. Isn't that interesting? So Morocco is in a trading relationship with Spain. So when this invasion occurred, in other words, the Abraham Accords are helping Morocco become wealthy. As Morocco is becoming wealthy, so are the merchants of Spain. So all of a sudden, just like that, you have an explanation as to why the merchants of Tarshish would voice opposition to this coalition coming against the nation of Israel. So we're, we're literally living in, I hope people understand this, I'm not a date setter, nor the son of a date setter, but there is absolutely no doubt in my mind that we are living in literally messianic times, where we are, we are seeing things come together on the world stage that prior generations have never saw, saw, seen before, because God is, that's how close we are to the end, is what I'm saying. And God is moving his hand in history to set everything up so that the tiny minutiae, the tiny specifics of his word will be fulfilled. Because God, at the end of the day, can't lie. God is going to move heaven and earth to see that his word is fulfilled. And all of these uh, people running around here, all of these world leaders, whether they're in the United States or whether they're abroad, they think they're in charge. You know, they, they really think that they're calling the shots. And in reality, it's God call, calling the shots. 
It's God using the ideas in their minds to set the stage for his end time program. You know, Judas, when he betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, probably thought it was his idea. And he acted on that, and he actually, in so doing, we covered this Wednesday night in Zechariah, in so doing, he fulfilled a prophecy of the betrayal of Christ for 30 pieces of silver that had been written 500 years before it happened. And God is doing the exact same thing right now in this very exciting era of biblical prophecy or eschatology. Now here's something very interesting. It says in Ezekiel 38 verse 13, it's describing the protest. Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish with all of its villages will say, have you come to capture spoil? Have you assembled your company to seize plunder to carry away? Look at the language here, silver and gold. To take away cattle and goods to capture great spoil. So when they protest the invasion, they're saying, have you come to seize Israel's silver and gold? Now, when we were in verse 12, I told you that Israel had to become very, very wealthy. If you look back at verse 12, it says to capture spoil, to seize plunder, to turn your hand against the waste places which are now inhabited and against the people who are gathered from the nations who have acquired cattle and goods who live at the center of the world. And I was showing you last week that, in fact, Israel has become wealthy. Her gross domestic product outstrips that of her neighbors. We saw some charts to that effect last time. There are trillions of dollars of mineral deposits in the Dead Sea. We saw that last time. Israel has discovered natural gas. We saw that last time on her area or her land. She's discovered oil um, in her land. And I was on with um, my friend Brandon House on his TV program, and we were talking about this, and there came to our our attention later a very acerbic um, website piece against what we were saying. Uh, It was written by Gary DeMar. If you know anything about Gary DeMar, he's basically a preterist, meaning he thinks this whole invasion already happened. He thinks it happened in the book of Esther. And... What do I know about preterism? Preterism means past. I know more than I wish I knew about it. Let's just put it that way. I did my master's thesis against preterism concerning Revelation 13. I did my doctoral dissertation against the preterist interpretation of Revelation 17 and 18. And so I wish I didn't know what I know about preterism because it's a lot of time to devote in your life to a bad doctrine. But I had to graduate, amen? So I had to with something. Because they, they say this, they say, we want you to make an original contribution to graduate. And I'm thinking, original contribution? Didn't Solomon say there's nothing new under the sun? <laughs> so I decided to react against the new heresies. And so I got my diploma, praise God. And they were happy with that. 
But one of the things Gary DeMar noted is he says, you know, Andy Woods and Brandon House, they don't, they obviously don't take the Bible literally because it actually says here silver and gold. And there's no silver and gold in Israel. So we had, we'd gone on and on about oil discoveries, natural gas. We had gone on and on about mineral deposits. But Gary DeMar comes on the scene and he says, no, the text actually says wealth in terms of silver and gold. And these guys, they claim to take the Bible literally, you know, ha, 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 what, what buffoons because they're not interacting with silver and gold. And actually, when you hear something like that, and when someone like comes out in print, you know, and attacks you, you know, it's it's not like with these preterists, it's not like a friendly dialogue among the brethren. It's not like that at all. I mean, it's a war, it's a propaganda war, where they are out to totally discredit you and make you look as dumb as you could possibly look. So no one will ever listen to you again. And I have to admit that when I got wind of this blog that he wrote, I thought, well, he actually has a point. Um, it says silver and gold, and we claim to be literal interpreters, and so I just sort of, you know, like most things, you just file it in the back of your mind and think, okay, maybe the Lord will give me an answer down the road. Well, I, I think I have an answer to the silver and gold. Um, it's not mine. I learned this through my involvement with Stealing the Mind conferences. Uh, my friend Bill Perkins of Compass Ministries runs that ministry, and he has put out these little books. I think there's four volumes. He calls them Steel on Steel. And in volume three, chapter four, which was sitting on my shelf, but Bill is the one that brought this to my attention. He has this absolutely fascinating article on inevitable discoveries, eminent discoveries of gold and silver in the land of Israel. And he, you know, he goes into a lot more detail on it and explains it a lot better than me, but his basic premise is when you study the Solomonic Empire, okay, that Solomon was the last um, king of the United Kingdom. Israel reached its highest levels of prosperity and its greatest border uh, expansion under the reign of Solomon. And when you study the Solomonic Empire in the book of First Kings, the Chronicles books, you'll see gold and silver, particularly gold everywhere, it's mentioned. Then, on the eve of the Babylonian captivity, in the genealogies, as recorded in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, there's a description there of things that the nation of Israel brought with them into captivity and brought back with them from captivity. And it does mention silver and gold, but it doesn't at all mention the volume of silver and gold that existed in the time of Solomon. So the question is, well, what happened to the silver and gold? And, and Bill Perkins' contention is the Israelis at that point in history, because they knew that the Babylonian captivity was inevitable, they took the silver and gold and they hid it. They, they, in fact, they hid it so well that the next generation didn't even know where it was hidden. And how does he reach this conclusion? He reaches this conclusion by looking at all of the passages 
that talk about silver and gold under Solomon versus the passages that talk about the silver and gold that was taken into captivity and brought back from captivity. And what they took into captivity and brought back from captivity is a pittance, it's slim pickings compared to all of the gold and silver Solomon owned. And so the question is, well, what happened to it? And the premise is, and it's just a working thesis, I don't know if I would start a new church, you know, over this, the Israelis hit it. They didn't want Nebuchadnezzar to have it, so they hit it. And if they if they hit it somewhere, it's still there. And it's just a matter of time, according to this thinking, that Israel will come upon a tremendous discovery of silver and gold. And the invaders will come against Israel, not just for wealth, because of silver and gold. And when that happens, I'm going to write my own blog piece. I mean, I've got it all written. I just have to wait for the discovery. Against our critics saying, you know, nah, 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 nah. Um, so I just find that interesting, and I'll just submit that to you for your consideration. It's just a theory, and don't, don't take everything I say in terms of these theories as gospel truth, but it's just a working theory. It, w- it would not surprise me in the least to find out one day Israel has the natural gas, Israel has the oil, Israel has the mineral deposits in the Dead Sea, and, oh, by the way, there's been this massive discovery of gold and silver. That would not surprise me given what I've tried to explain Because that's how God works. Somehow, when this whole thing happens, we're gonna, we're gonna step back and we're gonna say, wow, look at what God did to see that the myopic details of His Word uh, will be fulfilled. So, we move from there down to verses 14 through 16, where we've talked about the invasion planned by God and by Gog, the leader. And now we go to verses 14 through 16 where we see the invasion executed. So notice, if you will, Ezekiel chapter 38 and notice verse 14. It says, Therefore prophesy, son of man, and say to Gog. By the way, as I'm reading, I could really use a little bit more air up here if that's within the realm of possibilities. If not, I'll just preach a sermon on hell. (laughs) It says, therefore, praise the Lord, listen to that. Be a tough sermon on Easter morning, wouldn't it? Therefore, prophesy, son of man, and say to Gog, thus says the Lord God, on that day when my people Israel are living in security... Will you not know it? So Gog, who is Gog, as we've talked about, Gog is the leader, the human being that's leading this coalition. Is Putin Gog? I don't know, but he sure is acting very Gog-like, in my opinion. So the human leader comes against Israel, and it's very clear in verse 14 They come against Israel when Israel is living in security. And this is a major clue because everybody wants to know when this is going to happen. 
This is not the first time we've run across this term security. It was mentioned in verse 8, but its people were brought out from the nations and they are living securely. That's the Hebrew word batak, all of them. Verse 11, it says, And you will say, I will go against the land of unwalled villages. I will go against those who are at rest. That's a different word, shakat. That lives securely, batak again, all of them living without walls and having no bars or gates. So you've got these major clues telling you when this is going to happen. It's a time period when Israel is actually living in security. She's not just living in security, she's living at peace and at rest. She's not just winning wars, she's living in a time period where she doesn't need to fight anymore. Where there's no more terrorist attacks, the land of Israel is quiet and undisturbed. That's what shakat means. Batak means security, sometimes translated unwalled villages. But there's two Hebrew words here. There's a second word called shakat at peace and at rest, that obviously that second word doesn't describe Israel today because Israel, if you've been following Israeli news, right now is under severe terrorist attacks. So this shakat is obviously not happening today. Well, when is it going to happen? It's going to happen when they enter into the deal of the century with the Antichrist. This deal of the century, or deal of the millennium, probably we could call it, is predicted in Isaiah 28, verse 15, which says, Because you have said we have made a covenant with death and with Sheol, we have made a pact. Verse 18 of Isaiah 28, Your covenant with death will be canceled, and your pact with Sheol will not stand. So there's coming a time in history where the nation of Israel reaches out to the Antichrist who guarantees her survival. Which means the nation of Israel has to be put under duress to give up part of her land in exchange for the illusory promise of peace, to be in a psychological preparation where she's reaching out to the Antichrist for her survival. And uh, Blinken said, March the 28th, as he was talking with the leadership of the PLO, that the two-state solution, it's his own language, not mine, is back on the table. The two-state solution is forcing Israel to give up what's called the West Bank. We call it as Christians, Judea, and Samaria in exchange for the promise of peace. So I believe this, that the two-state solution, so-called, which will take the width of Israel and reduce it to less than 10 miles, if this goes through. And my pilot friends tell me you need more than 10 miles to shoot down an incoming plane that's there to attack you. This two-state solution, once it goes through, I don't know when it's going to go through, how it's going to go through, I just know it's back on the table, will put Israel in a position where she's almost indefensible. She can't defend herself anymore. And that will create the incentive by which she will reach out to the Antichrist when he shows up for her survival. 
And once that happens, the seven-year tribulation period launches. There's a clock that God gave to Daniel with 490 years on it. 483 have already elapsed, stopping at Palm Sunday, leaving seven years yet future. As God is at work with the church, God's finger is on that pause button. But one of these days, his work with the church will end. The church will be translated to heaven through the rapture. And God will put his hand back on the start button. And God's finger does not go back on the start button until Israel enters into this deal with the Antichrist that the prophet Isaiah calls a pact with Sheol, or hell itself. Because at that point in history, Israel will mistakenly think that their Messiah is the Antichrist. And through this process, God is going to bring them to an awareness that the Antichrist is not their Christ. Their Christ came 2,000 years ago. And when the Antichrist double-crosses them right in the middle of the tribulation period, by desecrating their temple, their eyes get opened. So God, a great piece of theology that was given to me when I first got saved was God knocks us down so we look up. That's how God works. It's worked that way in all of our lives if we're honest. And the same thing is about to happen with Israel. She will enter into this peace treaty. She will be betrayed by the man who guaranteed her security And her eyes get opened in the second half of the tribulation period. But this peace treaty is what launches this seven-year time period. So this, I believe, is the time period that Ezekiel is seeing when he talks about the invasion happening when Israel is dwelling in unwalled villages at peace and at rest. Because it's a, it's a peace to be sure, but it's a false peace. It's a temporary peace. So that sort of takes this event that we're reading about here and anchors it down to the, the first part, I should say, of the tribulation period. I believe that this battle will take place subsequent to the first seal. The first seal judgment is the Antichrist showing up as the rider on the white horse who brings temporary peace. But when the second seal is opened up by Jesus Christ in heaven, global war breaks out. The peace was obviously very temporary. And what starts this global war is this very invasion that we're speaking of here. So I don't think this is something that could take place before the tribulation period starts, as many are teaching today. I don't think it's something that could take place before the rapture. I think it's something that is actually anchored down to the tribulation period um, itself. And so that becomes this transition from peace to war becomes one of the major clues whereby you can pinpoint when this event will take place. And it goes on there in verse 15, and it says, You will come from your place out of the remote parts of the north. I mean, Ezekiel, this issue of the, not just the north, 
But the far north has been repeated by Ezekiel a number of times. The first time we saw it was in chapter 38, verse 6, remote north. Not just north, remote north. The second time we saw it is right here in verse 15. And then you see it again in chapter 39, verse 2, where he says, I will turn you around and drive you on to take you up from the remotest part of the north and bring you against the mountains of Israel. So this invader is coming not just from the north. He's coming from the far north. Uh, He's coming from the remote north. And we know from verse 12, as we saw last time, and Ezekiel 5, verse 5, that as, as, as far as God thinks, the center of the earth is Israel. All of these directional issues in prophecy, north, south, all this stuff, you have, to, you have to have the right starting point. The starting point is Israel, which God says is at the center of the earth. And then it's just a matter of going to the remote north. And what nation do you run into? You run into Rosh or Russia, which just rolled right over Ukraine. Uh, Google Maps is helpful sometimes. And there's Israel. And just go straight north, and you don't just run into Russia. You run into Moscow. Sort of interesting, isn't it? And we spent a lot of time explaining why Rosh, contrary to what a lot of people are saying, really is is Russia. So this expression, remote parts of the north, is mentioned again in verse 15. And then you look at the second part of verse 15, and it says, Many peoples with you. All of them riding on horses. Now, we've mentioned horses because people say, well, how could this be a future warfare when it's describing ancient battle weapons like horses? Well, the devil is in the details, isn't it? Because as you study this very carefully, it talks there, chapter 39, verse 2, on the mountains of Israel. Israel, because of the um, Golan Heights being annexed into the land of Israel, now has bodacious mountains. And so it kind of makes sense that they would come on horses because horses are better capable of handling mountainous terrain. So what do horses mean? I think horses mean horses. In fact, our own uh, CIA back in 1980 to do battle in the Middle East, actually brought horses into the Middle East that were born and bred, bred and born in the state of Tennessee. So all these people that just mock this and say, how, oh, how could there be horses? There's actually a logical reason why there would be horses. And then it says there in verse 15, And many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great assembly and a mighty army. So what I'm seeing here in Ezekiel 38 is not something that's exhaustive. He's not giving every single nation that's involved. He's mentioning the major players, but he's not mentioning, for example, those nations in the inner ring closest or adjacent to the land of Israel, nations like Jordan, Egypt. Because a lot of people are arguing that there's two wars here. 
first there's a war for the inner ring. They invade first. They try to tie that into Psalm 83. And then there's the Ezekiel 38 and 39 war, which happens later. And I'm really not of that persuasion because I think when these nations invade, they will all invade concurrently. They will invade simultaneously. Because Ezekiel, when he mentions these different names, doesn't say Rosh and only Rosh. Persia and only Persia. Magog and only Magog. You know, he's basically just summarizing in a non-exhaustive way the major players, but that would include nations in the inner ring as well. So there's no need to develop another battle here. Psalm 83, and I've tried to explain this in prior lessons, is largely a distraction. Psalm 83 is just an imprecatory prayer. It's not even a prophecy against God's perennial enemies. There's no need to go to Psalm 83 and develop an alternative war here. The, the action is in Ezekiel 38 and 39. So that's why I think Ezekiel keeps saying, and all the peoples with you. He says that in chapter 39, verse 4. You will fall on the mountains of Israel, you and all your troops, and the peoples who are with you. He says that in chapter 38, verse 6, verse 9, verse 15, verse 22, and also right here in chapter 39 and verse 4. And then you go down to chapter 38, verse 16, as we're trying to study this verse by verse. As this war is now being executed, it's no longer planned, now it's being executed. The planning stage is in verses 1 through 13. We're past that. God's plan and Gog's plan. Now we're into the action stage. And it says in verse 16, you will come against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. It shall come about in the last days. I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when I am sanctified through you before their eyes, O Gog, as God through Ezekiel is addressing Gog, the leader of this invasion. You'll notice that when this invasion comes against the land of Israel, it's going to be like a cloud. And we've seen that imagery earlier, haven't we? If you back up to verse 9, a couple of similes were used to describe this invasion. You will go up and you will become like a storm. You will be like a cloud. And then you slip down to uh, verse 16, and you know what a simile is, right? It connects two things through the expression like or as. So this is what it's going to be like. It's going to be like a, a cloud. It's going to be like a cloud covering. It's going to be like a storm. In other words, it's going to descend upon Israel in, with such velocity, like a storm, that there's absolutely no hope that they have but God, right? And that's sort of the point, to push them to this point, where they have no hope at all against this giant storm cloud rapidly overtaking them other than to cry out to the Lord for help. And this is how the Lord is going to bring salvation 
to the Jewish nation, which is one of the great purposes of the Great Tribulation. The Great Tribulation is not just to judge planet Earth for its sins, although there will be plenty of that, believe me, but it's to bring salvation to the Jewish nation. God, when he had planned the events of the Great Tribulation period, always had in mind this purpose. You can find it many places in the Bible, like Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7. A time of unparalleled distress for Jacob. There'll be none like it, but he will be saved out of it. And so man thinks he's executing his plan, but he's actually executing God's plan. He's putting into motion the events that will lead to the conversion of the nation of Israel. And once that happens, oh my goodness, then you have the prospect of the millennial kingdom being established on the earth and Satan being evicted. So it's going to come like a cloud. To cover the land. Now, what's very interesting is you have to look very carefully at verse 16. It says, my people, my land. Because there's a mindset out there called replacement theology, which says the Jewish people in unbelief, the nation I'm talking about, rejected their king 2,000 years ago, and so God is through with the Jew. God is through with the nation of Israel. In fact, most Christians by way of denominational affiliation are taught this uh, around the clock. Uh, That explains one of my involvements with a group in Australia. Um, And here I can't remember the name of the group. (laughs) Um, It's got the name Israel in it anyway. It will come to me in a second. But they're trying to start a group. They've been having a group where they're trying to focus on Israel in the church. And when I was there, um, they said this group is so needed because all of our denominational seminaries crank out these replacement theologians and amillennialists around the clock. And so we desperately need a group within Australia that believes correctly theologically in God's plan and program for the nation of Israel. Israel. Yeah, thank you. Very good. Awake to Israel. And obviously I wasn't very awake myself since I couldn't remember the title. Awake to Israel. See, isn't that a great uh, associate pastor right there? Was that you, Brother Jim? Thank you. And that's what associate pastors are supposed to do. As Moses' arms get tired, they're supposed to lift him up <laughs> so, they, so you can prevail against the Amalekites. So we, we appreciate the ministry of Brother Jim. Um, so that's wonderful. So what I'm trying to show you is replacement theology can't be true because Israel here is still in unbelief, right? They haven't been converted yet in this prophecy. And God calls them my people, Israel. And he calls the land of Israel, my land. And that is how you look at the modern state of Israel. You don't look at them as unbelievers. You look at them as what God is going to do through them 
and for them in the future. You have to look at the Jewish people or the Hebrew people through the eyes of faith. That is exactly what Paul tells us to do in Romans 11, I believe it's verse 28, when he describes Israel. He says, from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. They might be causing you all kinds of trouble in the book of Acts, Paul says, as recorded in the book of Acts. But you look at them as if they are chosen by God. In other words, when you look at the Jewish state, you don't go on a rant about, look at those Jews over there, they're in unbelief, they haven't trusted Yeshua, they're so blind. You look at them in terms of what God is going to do for them, yet future, in terms of removing the blinder on their eyes. And when you understand that, then you understand how could you have anything different in your heart other than a love for the Jewish people. Replacement theologians will never take you that direction. They'll just talk about how bad they are, what they did to Jesus, how they rejected Jesus. The last time I looked, I think we all rejected Jesus because Jesus died for the sins of the world. He died for my sins. I I put him on the cross just as much as a Jewish person that rejected him in the first century put him on the cross. But see, replacement theology never goes this direction. And it just talks about how bad Israel is. And at the height of their unbelief, God keeps saying of them, my people, my land, because of the covenant that he made with them in the book of Genesis. Charles Feinberg, again, a Hebrew Christian interpreter of the Bible, brilliant scholar, says in his Ezekiel commentary concerning this verse, do not fail to notice my people in verses 14 and 16, and my land in verse 16. The godless nations have little idea how involved God is in all the concerns his people and his land. This has been true throughout national existence, but will be all the more evident when God finally decides to intervene decisively into the affairs of men in the consummation of the prophetic program for the earth, close quote. Yes, they are in unbelief, but no, they won't stay in that position forever. And therefore, God keeps looking at them through all of these years of national disobedience as his land and his people. Because he is God and he is the one that bequeathed that land to the nation of Israel in the Abrahamic covenant. You have another timing clue there in verse 16 where it says it shall come about in the last days. So we have our list of factors that we look at to try to pin down exactly when this is going to happen. And there's another clue right there in verse 16 that it's going to happen in the last days. Now you got to get your last days straight. Every time the Bible uses the word last days, it's not talking about the same thing. For example, the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 3 verse 1 says, But realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. When Paul used that expression, 
he was talking about the last days of the church age. Essentially the time period that we're living in now. That's not what last days means when Ezekiel or the prophets use the term. They're not talking about the end of the church age because they couldn't see the church age. Because the church age, Ephesians 2 and 3, is called a what? Mystery. Something veiled, but not fully fleshed out until the writings of the Apostle Paul. So a lot of people will look at a prophecy like this and they'll make it about the last days of the church and Ezekiel himself couldn't see the church. It's what Ezekiel saw. It's a lot like looking at two mountains in the distance with the larger one in the back and you can see the two mountain peaks but you cannot see the valley between the mountain peaks. If you want to know what's going on in the valley, you've got to read Paul. And you've also got to study the inner advent parables that Jesus gives in Matthew 13, which are also called a mystery. So when he says last days, it's not the last days of the church. If you want to know about the last days of the church, read Paul. You don't read Ezekiel. When Ezekiel uses the expression last days, he's talking about the last days of Israel. And when you track that expression through the prophets... What you'll discover is that expression, last days, always refers to Israel's discipline and restoration. That's how it's used in Isaiah 2.2. It will come about that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established. That's the restoration of Israel. That's how it's used in Jeremiah 30, uh, 23, verse 20. In the last days, you will clearly understand it. The anger of the Lord will turn back until he has performed and carried out the purpose of his heart. That's how it's used in Jeremiah 30, verse 24. And Hosea 3, verse 1. And Micah chapter 4, verse 1. Last days is the discipline and the restoration of the Jewish nation. So if that is true, Ezekiel just gave us another clue as to when this is going to happen. It must be a tribulation period event leading to the millennial kingdom. Because that's what is meant here by last days. So we have seen here an invasion planned, an invasion executed, And then beginning in verse 17, you see the invasion defeated. I mean, it looks absolutely overwhelming. It's coming against the Jewish people like a dark storm cloud. There seems to be no hope in sight. And then God shows up. And as this invasion is defeated, that prophecy begins in verse 17 and really stretches all the way through chapter 39, verse 20 where we're going to see the following four things. Number one, God is going to destroy these armies. I mean, they think they're pulling off some great victory. Uh, they They don't understand the brick wall that they're about to run into. And how God does it is described in chapter 38, verse 17, through chapter 39, verse 8. And guess what? There's going to be a giant bonfire. 
Because God is going to take all of their weapons and burn them. In fact, they're going to burn for seven years. In chapter 39, verse 10. Oh no, Andy, the timing interpretation that you gave, that puts the burning of weapons in the millennial kingdom. And we can't have that. You can't have burning weapons in the millennial kingdom. Really? Babylon, Revelation 19, 2 and 3, is going to burn throughout the whole millennial kingdom as a commemoration to God's destruction of the wicked city of Babylon. What's wrong with having some weapons burn for seven years? It's a memento. It's looking backward to what God did. That, by the way, is why there's going to be animal sacrifices in the millennial kingdom. Looking back to what God did concerning the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. Babylon is going to burn. Animals are going to be sacrificed in the Jewish temple. And weapons themselves are going to burn for seven years. Everybody's upset about this, and so they want to readjust this war to some sort of pre-rapture or pre-tribulation event. I have absolutely no need to do that because I have no problem with seeing weapons burn in the millennium alongside other things that are going to burn. See, the thing to understand about the millennium is it's not the eternal state. The eternal state is an ex nihilo new creation. The millennial kingdom is a renovation of this existing earth. In fact, non-resurrected people actually will die in the millennial kingdom. Isaiah 65 verse 20. So you've got death in the millennial kingdom to a limited extent. You've got animal sacrifices in the millennial kingdom. You've got Babylon burning for the whole time period. So why is everybody so uptight about some weapons burning? So it's not it's not a problem at all. I don't I don't I don't see the big issue everybody makes of these weapons burning. And then the soldiers are going to be buried, chapter thirty nine, verses eleven through sixteen. And the procedure through which these soldiers are buried, I was I have a friend in Duluth, Minnesota. When I go to their conference, I stay at his home. He's a military guy. He teaches Ezekiel 38 and 39. And when he teaches it, he pulls out his military manual, which describe how you're to, to mark the deceased before burying him. And he reads the part of the military manual, how this is done. And it's exactly the same concerning what Ezekiel is talking about. In chapter 39, verses 11 through 16. And then the soldiers will be eaten. Chapter 39, verses 17 through 20. Some buried, some eaten. It's the birds come of prey, the vultures. And they begin to gorge on the corpses of the deceased. Now, that imagery is at the end of the tribulation. Matthew 24 puts it at the end of the tribulation. Revelation 19 puts it at the end of the tribulation. So you can see what I'm doing here. I'm not saying that Ezekiel 38 and 39 is all fulfilled at the same time. This is a process. And I think this process brackets the tribulation. Chapter 38 is essentially talking about something that's going to happen towards the beginning. 
chapter 39 and related scriptures are talking about something that's going to happen to the, at the end. And so I'm seeing chapters 38 and 39 as a process with chapters 38 and 39 bracketing the outer edges of the tribulation period. It's a view that most people have never heard before. It's not original with me. I picked this up from my professor, um, the late, uh, the late Harold Honer. And speaking of late, it's three minutes over, so let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word, grateful for your truth, and help us to understand that this is not um, just fantasy football. Uh, this is something that's actually going to hit planet Earth and help us to understand that you mean business. These things are very real. And I pray that in our main service today, as we set forth the case for Jesus Christ and his bodily resurrection, that many, many people, when the gospel is given today, whether they're here in the building or listening online, would be saved on this special day, Resurrection Day. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. God's people said, Amen. Amen. Happy uh, intermission.